You're listening to City is Playground, a podcast by Leadership Foundations. I'm the host, Rick Enlow, and I'm here with President Dave Hillis. How are you doing, Dave? Rick, I'm great. Thank you. Well, the uh, time of the year uh, is perfect for us to put a capstone on this uh, series, which we're talking about imagining abundance. I always think about fall and, uh, you know, just even our brothers and sisters in Canada get the old Thanksgiving thing going uh, a little earlier than earlier. we do. But yeah, it's that time <laughs> of the year when the harvest, you know, is in and uh, and people do really generally uh, worldwide have a moment at least to, uh, to think about you know the harvest and the abundance and the, you know the provision and all that and that that as a uh, an attitude uh, you know full time has been what we're looking at uh, in terms of our local leadership foundations and the idea of imagining abundance instead of uh, I guess fixating on scarcity which is you know another option right so uh, yeah absolutely. Uh, remind us Dave where we kind of have wandered on this um, and even even getting back to the idea of uh, perhaps we have some folks that are newer to the podcast and they're like city is playground. I'm not uh, tuned in to why you guys say that either. So yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it actually gets back to the, the very title of the podcast itself, Rick, which was, yeah. uh, you know, largely your prompt, but we, uh, uh, you know, from the beginning, <clears throat> okay. Is that better? Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, so you know, Rick, part part of the, where this kind of origin story came from was something that took place in somewhat unexpected way for me. I, uh, you know, had the privilege of studying with uh, Dr. Ray Baki, and uh, in that uh, period of study in my life, when I was doing my DMIN, um, I had to come up, of course, with a, a thesis and kind of a proposal and. Lo and behold, what I decided to do was to write down as best as I could the theology of the leadership foundations. And mm. this came out of a very practical reality, which is, is that, you know, the mothers and fathers whose shoulders we stood on were getting, as one poet would describe it, long in the tooth. And uh, no one had ever written essentially anything down about the leadership foundations. We are probably like many organizations, at least in its origin, were largely verbal. And we would tell mm -hmm. great stories. And every time we would gather together, we would tell these great stories. But again, I began to notice that nobody was ever writing down these great stories. And so at some point, heaven forbid, if you know, a Reed Carpenter or Bill Milliken uh, were to be taken, you know, we would lose a lot of our of our history. Yeah. So that was really the the prompt, and I, you know, again, when I talk about a theology of the leadership foundations, that that's probably way too grand a statement. I mean, it was just simply trying to jot down as best as I could some things that I was hearing. In the course of it, um, I <clears throat> was um, also though uh, reading about what sustains uh, organizations, and there was a Jesuit, uh, and this is of course a. Uh, a theology that I go back to time and again, and effectively, mm -hmm. uh, his argument was is that you know an order in the Catholic Church or a organization you know outside the Catholic Church uh, it it sustains itself to the degree that it continues to renew. And here was the phrase: their original charism. Mm -hmm. um, and by charism, at least in a Christian context, Rick, what we mean is that you know, initial gift of God that was given to said organization. So 
you know, whether it's the Benedictines that you and I've had a chance to be around for mm-hmm. a bit or, you know, the, uh, the Franciscans or the Jesuits, the whole idea was, is if you, if you want to build an organization that has some sense of sustain, sustainability to it, you need to not necessarily look forward, although that is a part of the whole deal, but actually is to look backward and say, what happened, you know, in that origin story? Well, I dived in at that point to Sam Shoemaker, who, of course, was the person who had this vision uh, for Pittsburgh that it would become someday as known for, you know, God as it currently was for steel. And this is, of course, in 1962. He was the one that brought Reed Carpenter into the mix. And it was that vision that electrified Reed to such a degree that at some point, um, Reed said, I, there needs to be an organization that is built around that vision. Uh, Sam happened, you know, in his spare time to also write roughly 33 books. And so part of my part of my task in uh, putting this dissertation together is to begin to read, uh, you know, Sam Shoemaker and listen to uh, Reed Carpenter. And what surfaced and became obvious to me was that the original charism that was given by the Holy Spirit to Sam and to Reed was this idea about the way they saw the city. Uh, and the more I sat with that, uh, the more I became convinced, Rick, that what they did, and this, you know, in the 1960s, I mean, this was a novel, novel thought, was they actually had the audacity uh, to see the city uh, as, you know, and then this was the phrase I came up with that was fueled by G.K. Chesterton, but the city is as God's playground. And so that is the original charism, right? That's the, yeah. the, the thing that sits at the very base of all of who Elif is. And so now, you know, 40 plus years later, uh, as we are in 40, you know, five plus cities around the world and, you know, doing, you know, work uh, in all kinds of different ways. Um, part of my task, of course, is to bring people back time and time again, whether it's the board of directors, whether it's our local leadership foundation presidents, whether it's our LF global office and say, you know, remember um, the original charism and the thing that we've been asked to steward and be faithful to is this idea of city as playground. Yeah. And so that's, and- that was the original sort of, you know, impulse, Rick, that got this thing kind of moving in the direction that it did. And not, not a, not a huge jump to uh, not only the book that you that you wrote, which, you know, City is Playground, which is, I mean, really kind of a remarkable uh, uh, project because, you know, you were able to do this while these people, um, these, you know, sort of legendary founders and uh, great leaders were still on the earth, you know, which, <laughs> I mean, it's like you said, that's pretty cool because you actually could consult, you know, in real time. But also um, it was as uh, you examined that charism that we realized that, wow, I mean, this is how God has seen, you know, the city <laughs> all yeah. along. So we're just, you know, kind of coming into alignment yeah. and it's, it's amazing when, um, I guess I've used this example before, but it's, it's very, very sad metaphor, but you know, go with it here. But like, you know, I buy 
you know, like I'll get a new car, which is just new to me, you know, like my toothbrush is not brand new, but new to me. And, but the thing is that, you know, and I get a different car and then I see that car everywhere. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I'd never, ever noticed it ever. That's you know? right. And, uh, and so I think that that in that way, as we understand and examine, you know, the, the gift, uh, of, you know, leadership foundation. And like you said, the, the gift that is, that we're called to steward, you start seeing it, you know, in a, in all these cities, you know, yeah. in, in different ways. In fact, uh, one of the things that I think is interesting, and I think I would credit uh, our uh, uh, producer and roving reporter, Noah Basket, for this insight to me, mm-hmm. he was just, you know, because sometimes I think I got into the idea that I just, I'm going to pretend that the city is a playground or like kind of fake it, you know, because mm-hmm. what I'm seeing, you know, is violence and corruption stuff, and yeah. difficulty. And I'm thinking, eh, I'm just going to have to, you know, but that's not what we're talking about. We're not that's talking right. about, you know, inventing uh, or fabricating something, but actually seeing yeah. in the middle of everything, the abundance. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it's absolutely true. And, and you know, I should just further add here, you know, that once that kind of idea began to surface, um, I like your image a lot, because then, of course, it made me began to recognize all of the input that Ray Bakke, for example, had for so many years. And uh, it had sort of slipped by me at some level until I think LF was able to kind of grab that term city as playground. Then it's all of a sudden like a lot of things coalesced all at Mm -hmm. once. Um, And maybe most prominently, Rick, is, you know, where we settled and we talk about this in leadership foundations all the time is the Zechariah 8 passage. where a city, uh, you know, Jerusalem in this case has seen its best days, you know, kind of behind her mm-hmm. and, uh, things are, are not looking good moving forward. And it's anything, but a city as a playground and Zechariah has the audacity by which to look at this city in all of her, you know, wounded and bruised ways and say, there's coming a time, uh, in a not too distant future where your streets will be filled with kids playing on them and the elderly will sit with cane in hand on porch, watching them in safety. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, we, we sort of asked the question, what was the prompt, you know, in Zachariah to articulate such an audacious claim? Part of it, you know, is our deep belief that, you know, God is, already present uh, in Mm -hmm. that very difficult situation. And so now it becomes a matter of the way you see a city uh, over and against, um, you know, what the city actually is. And that becomes a part of the discipline, right? That becomes a part of the training that, uh, you know, we want to bring local leadership foundation presidents through um, is how do you begin to create that line of sight, right? Mm -hmm that it doesn't gloss over, right? It doesn't ignore some of these harsh realities, but that it is possible to see your city in such a way uh, that she is uh, a playground rather than a battleground. Mm -hmm. And it's our conviction, right? That to the degree that you can do that, and this is a classic GK Chesterton, that it becomes great uh, because of the way you are loving her, right? Mm -hmm. As uh, this positive reality as this playground over and against uh, a battleground. So yeah. that's uh, that's that's been huge. 
you know, the next step, and this was a, again, a little bit of an epiphany, Rick, where, you know, we sat with this idea of city as playground and, you know, it sort of begged the question, well, okay, if that changes one's, you know, line of sight, what exactly does it change? And so here we dived into, you know, three things that we think are always prominent. Uh, the first was theological, right? That again, this God in the scripture, uh, beginning in Genesis and going all the way to the book of Revelation, um, actually is a friend of the city rather than a foe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you and I have talked about this before and actually compared notes with regard to our own theological education. But, um, you know, today people would say, well, of course God loves the city. I mean, come on, that's God's job description. But you know, there have been long periods of time uh, where at best a seminary education gave you a kind of neutral view of the city. Most of the time, uh, it actually was a, a more negative view. Yeah. And the, and the sort of working assumption is that if God ever got God's act together again, um, you know, we would be going back to things like pastures and meadows and shepherds and sheep and cows and, you know, all of that. And uh, I just actually came from a trip to Iowa this week. So I'm, I'm somewhat now fluent in that, <laughs> in those things. Yeah. I, I, it's uh, really quite remarkable to be in a state given over to agriculture like that. But, you know, again, the, the idea was, is that, that that's the true Edenic sort of resting heart rate of God. And, you know, we wanted to replace that and say, in fact, no, um, you know, it's the city that, that seems to bear God's heart best. And that while the, you know, scripture begins in a garden in Genesis, it ultimately has its consummation in a city. So I think to make that strong theological declaration that cities and all of this urbanization, right, and the fact that you know, we've got over, you know, 50% of the world living in cities, and that's only going to increase. Um, that's a sign of God's sovereignty, not a sign of the lack of God's sovereignty. And I don't think we can state that enough, Rick. Um, you know, that, that when I walk out into the city that I love, Tacoma, it's God's idea, right? That this is this is here because God wants it here. And it's not a mistake. It's not yeah. an aberration. You know, it's not an outlier. So, yeah. you know, the second big thing then is it moved us to begin to think about sociology. Um, and the sociological implication is that our neighbor, right? This, this thing, you know, we call our neighbor that is always a little bit of an enigma and we're always finding ourselves trying to figure out how to live with each other, that that neighbor now is a colleague rather than a competitor. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where we talk a bit about, you know, the Girardian universe and, you know, our desires and things like that. But, but at a, at a fundamental level, you know, that, that good Samaritan idea that surfaces uh, in the gospel of Luke, you know, where he asks that wonderful question, well, who is my neighbor? Mm-hmm. Um, right? Trying to sort of thread that needle. And uh, Jesus comes back in this, you know, sort of declarative kind of way. Um, well, let me tell you this story. And of course, the bottom line of that story is that everybody uh, is your your neighbor. And that neighbor is actually a colleague rather than a competitor. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've oftentimes said, Rick, that, you know, if I had to place my finger on at least a part of the Leadership Foundation genius it's to watch uh, our presidents 
who have effectively woven, you know, their city together around neighbor um, as colleagues, right? Mm -hmm. They'll work with anybody um, and everybody uh, around, you know, any particular issue and things like what tribe you, you know, sort of come from, uh, you know, what uh, particular denomination uh, are you representative of? What race, what gender, what sexual orientation? I mean, all of those things dissipate, uh, not so much in the sense that they're still not important, but that they are not the primary identif- identifier of why and how we might work together. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, rather it's the city, you know, it's yeah. being citizens together. Um, so, yeah, and, and in most cases, third, those, yeah. yeah, in most cases, those uh, the things you mentioned are actually you know, not identifiers as much as redefinitions, you know, that's what we have to fight. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, you know, the, the, one of the things that's amazing to me is because each city is so unique, obviously. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, we've always been willing to admit that, yeah, that the expression, you know, of uh, God's work in a city is unique, but yeah, that, but this, this idea that, that every city is a playground, you know, it is a thing that coheres, I think that's right. all of us that, that, uh, that care about the cities. And so I think that's been, uh, not only coherent or, you know, bringing us together theologically, but sociologically, you know, so yep. that, like you said, the, uh, the prodigal, uh, you know, I mean, the, uh, the good Samaritan story, it, it's just so, so remarkable that, you know, the conclusion would be like, we actually need the Samaritans, you know, <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. that's absolutely, that's absolutely yeah. true. In fact, yeah. it'd be fun to, you know, at some point talk more about that, but um, you, that could not be a more true statement that the Samaritan actually becomes a, a way that, you know, our discipleship, you know, largely is formed and informed moving forward. Yeah. So it's yeah, great. Yeah. And, and the, the third, third thing, yeah, the third thing, and this is the, of course, the series that we're on right now, that's, you know, arguably the hardest part of this. I mean, I, I mean, not that God being a friend of the city is an easy theological hurdle to go over, or not that the colleague, uh, the neighbor of ours, is a colleague rather than a competitor. But we think that this city is playground, you know, kind of metaphor impacts, of course, the economy, and that the economy now becomes one of abundance rather than scarcity. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, is a challenge. Um, I will be the first uh, to want to admit and confess that I have struggled with this, you know, my entire life. Um, yeah, you know, you miss payroll, right? You are not able to, you know, quite pay for that, uh, that bill that kind of mocks you, uh, you know, each month. But in the course of that, one of the things that I think I can say is that ever so slowly, uh, I've, I've began to um, find myself, you know, kind of moved uh, by the Holy Spirit to say, yes, there is such a thing, you know, as abundance. Um, and uh, God has demonstrated it time and time again. And we've now been able to watch, you know, over the course of the better part of 40 years uh, within the LF network, um, you know, testimony after testimony of ways that abundance has shown up. Now, mind you, not quite in the way we had hoped, uh, not oftentimes with the calendar that we had created um, sure. and not even necessarily you know, in the way that 
we uh, we thought it would, but abundance nonetheless. And and you know, I think for me, Rick, the the thing that I've gotten increasingly excited about is that that sense of abundance um, is a capacity that can be curated. Mm-hmm. In other words, it, it can actually be both taught uh, and you know, in effect, trained uh, kind of into to who we are. I I think that, you know, some of my greatest moments, again, has been sitting with local leadership foundations in their respective city um, and looking at their city through their eyes and watching uh, them point out, you know, uh, expression after expression of abundance that I would never have seen, uh, Mm -hmm. in part because I don't know their city the way they know it, uh, but also in part because of my own poverty. And so to watch how that can actually be characteristic of somebody. Um, and I, you know, deeply want to be like that um, in my in my own life as well. So, um, so those are the three big ramifications to this ultimate big idea of city as playground. Yeah, and you know, whenever we, uh, any of us who work in what we'd call like the faith space or whatever you want to call it, like faith-based organizations, uh, I really do think this is where, um, you know, it's the the faith that it takes to uh, reimagine the city as, you know, God's idea or my neighbor as my colleague, uh, to me, is not as big a stretch as imagining that, you know, that there's a, an abundant supply, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's where, yeah. and so that's, that's, uh, that's where the faith part of the faith-based, you know, really lives. And I agree with you on that. And, and, and we've in fact actually been doing that, um, kind of that same sequence in, in, uh, relative to abundance is to back up and say, well, let's think about a little bit about theology. Then let's think about some of the local LF you know, uh, locations that we've had a chance to converse with. So let's let's start there with uh, the the idea. I think you were talking about, uh, you know, uh, you have talked about in the past, uh, the Sermon on the Mount as yeah. uh, an interesting, you know, kind of platform. Yeah, it, it, it is. And uh, it becomes even more interesting uh, when I've sat particularly with this uh, idea of Stanley Hauerwas. So Stanley is someone that we've referenced before uh, you know, a wonderful sort of theologian, ethicist out of Duke, uh, now retired. But uh, he is is studying the book of, of Matthew, and he gets to the end of chapter four. And if our readers will remember, or you will recall, Rick, that effectively at the end of chapter four, you, you've got Jesus with both shooters out. And I mean, I mean, everything is you know, moving in the right direction. And he, you know, I think it literally says that, you know, anybody who touched the hem of his garment was was healed. Yeah. And so then all of a sudden chapter five starts, which of course is the Sermon on the Mount. And Hauerwas pauses and says, that's a wonderful way. Um, if you had that much juice, I'm going to paraphrase here big time, but why would you, then decide to kind of, you know, sort of cut the juice off and have a sermon for three chapters. I mean, right. It it doesn't make any sense. I mean, you know, we would all say, I've got to keep this train rolling here for a while and, and, you know, 
continue to kind of, you know, push it forward for as long as I can, as long as the juice is there. Yeah. And out of that question, Arawas then says, true or false, um, you can only act within the world in which you see. And, you know, I've, I've used this question, Rick, uh, a number of times in uh, classes I've taught and seminars I've facilitated. And if you have time, of course, it's quite fun because you ask that question to the class and inevitably somebody's going to say, well, you know, that's absolutely false. I mean, you know, doesn't, doesn't the scripture itself say that faith, you know, is the evidence of things not seen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there'll be a group in the class. Like, yeah, that's right. You know, the whole bit. <laughs> and uh, why isn't you know, he teaching? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's how we And, you know, that. hopefully as a good educator, you say, yeah, that's the boy. There's a real case to be made there at some point somebody will say, well, you know, it kind of depends on what you mean by C. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this is where the conversation begins to quicken. And, uh, you know, the notion being that, that, you know, we see oftentimes without, you know, a particular image, you know, in place. In other words, it's our, our mental image. So we go back and forth. We have a great debate. But ultimately, as as the teacher of the class, I will use my bully pulpit and say, you know, I'm going to conclude that Harawas, uh, uh, who answers the question, that it's true. You can only act within the world in which you see is right. And then Harawas goes back to the Sermon on the Mount and he says, here was the thing that was at, you know, in balance with Jesus at the end of, of, of Matthew 4. He was becoming a miracle worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, handing out the goodies and everybody, you know, had a sense of that. And Jesus knew if that was the only world in which they saw that what he was about, what his mission was about, what he came to do would be reduced and limited and ultimately not able to be seen for what it actually was. So the math, so the Sermon on the Mount then becomes Jesus taking time now to introduce a worldview mm-hmm. that um, helps shape right that miracle activity at the end of, of Matthew four. Um, he needed to get you know his disciples certainly, but others um, a way of seeing right so that they mm-hmm. could act differently. Yeah, and you know time and time again. Rick, we talk about this in, in leadership foundations that how we that's unfortunately been flip-flopped. We think about behavior first, and if you behave right, then we will allow you to see a bit more. Well, the whole impulse of the gospel is no. Um, let us show you, right, the grandeur of this thing called the kingdom of God. That vision will then in turn begin to get you to behave differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's I think the theological basis by which, you know, this whole notion of the sight lines that we need to curate and develop. And one of those, again, is that, that we actually do live in a world of abundance. Um, let's see that, you know, let's, you know, begin to nurture that. Uh, and in turn, then, you know, you begin to behave differently, right? Mm-hmm. You approach problems in your city with a different sort of perspective. Uh, You look at, you know, other groups in the city with a different kind of collegiality. Um, But all of that stems from this, do you see it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you see it? And 
So often we are just, we have this impulse uh, to move before we see. And part of the discipline, I think, of working in a city is to pause and see before you move. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something, again, that I think we even talked about at one point, Rick. One of my favorite movies is Searching for Bobby Fisher. And there's this wonderful image um, of him, young Josh, you know, Waitkin, learning the game of chess. And at one point, Ben Kingsley, who's his one of his uh, chess mentors, is trying to get him to see the board. And he, you know, all of a sudden wipes off all the pieces on the board and has him stare at it and says, now, don't move until you see it. Mm-hmm. And this becomes almost a refrain. And without giving the, the movie away, there's this great moment where all of a sudden Josh says, I got it. Mm-hmm. Um, right? And he, because he can see. And, uh, yeah. and that's, again, the sort of almost counterintuitive move at times, I think, Rick, is, you know, the city's active, right? Things are moving. I mean, you feel like you got to get out there and make something happen quickly. And to move the other way and say, nope, I'm going to see first uh, and then I will move. Um, and that, I think, is key to this idea of the city and the economy as one of abundance. Um, yeah. I, I think our quick movements oftentimes cloak and veil the abundance that's already there. Yeah, well, and I mean, even in the Sermon on the Mount, um, you know, I mean, Jesus kind of takes everyone from where they are to where, you know, he, he begins to introduce, you know, a different way to see because he, yeah. he uses so often, you know, you, you've you heard this, but I say this, exactly. you've seen this, but have you noticed this, you know, and back and yeah, forth. So, exactly uh, right. yeah, and, and, you know, so many people uh, have taken not only you know, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, they say, well, that's just the uh, the hipped up version of the old, you know, the Ten Commandments and, you know, things like that. But, and it's just a moral to-do list, you know, like, hey, I, you know, how am I doing? Am I eight for 10? You know, what what's the, you know, what's the minimum <laughs> requirement here? You know, yeah. and when you when you understand it as a an introduction to, to see, uh, I have a, uh, a mentor at the University of Washington and he's a philosopher. And uh, so he has a redundant degree. He has a you know a PhD, a philosophy degree in philosophy. So, but uh, he he uh, he would say to a classroom of students, "How many of you are philosophers?" And like people would be like, "I don't know," you know. And then he goes, "Well, what is a philosopher?" So there's a discussion, you know. And he tries to break it down. He says, "Well, everyone thinks. Okay, that doesn't make you a philosopher. A philosopher thinks again." Mm. So he just said, "All of us have every option." you know, to, to demonstrate, you know, uh, an ability like to, to philosophize. If we just, once we think of something yep. and don't do anything, <laughs> then yep. the next thing you do is think again. That's right. You know, and I really do think, uh, uh, again, that, uh, the, the LF, uh, model is an introduction or an invitation to think again. Yeah. That's because perfect. like you said, there's just a sort of a, uh, you know, a demanding kind of, uh, speed, that that yeah. you know we we live in as as uh, you know in different culture different ways yeah. but but for us to stop and to think again so I think uh, when we do that um, you know the the you know the opportunity to see uh, starts to starts mm-hmm. to emerge you know mm-hmm. and now let's just highlight some of our past episodes in case people haven't binge listened to to our podcast yet but uh, <laughs> uh, but we've had some fascinating conversations and we don't want to um, you know have them all over again, but let's highlight, like, for instance, we had a chance to go to some, some very interesting, um, 
locations around the world um, from South Africa to Fresno, California to West Virginia. So just yeah. take us on a little uh, uh, ride through uh, some of our highlights uh, of our, our conversations in this past uh, series. Yeah, I would love to do that, Rick. And and again, I think you said it well. Um, one of the things that's so enjoyable is, is to see that this sight line that we've referenced here um, appears in such disparate places. Uh, so, you know, you go to a place like Bloemfontein, South Africa, and, um, you know, here we have a chance to sit with uh, Delaharp Leroy. And, you know, Delaharp, as I, I think I might have mentioned in our previous podcast, uh, you, you know, whatever else Delaharp is, um, I think if God has a voice, uh, it sounds, you know, uh, similar uh, to, to Delaharp. But Delaharp is a, is a pastor in Bloemfontein. Bloemfontein, you know, is one of the sort of power cities of South Africa. Um, you know, you've got Pretoria, of course, where it's uh, kind of the, the, I think it's the judicial. Um, you've got Cape Town, uh, which is um, another part of the government. And then Bloemfontein uh, is a, another place that the, effectively the three arms of the government have been divided up. Uh, Bloemfontein has also been, in some ways, you know, the uh, sort of seat um, of, uh, you know, particularly uh, the white community uh, in South Africa. So it has tended to be uh, more conservative uh, in that context. Um, and uh, this is the city that, that uh, Delaharp was, was raised in, um, became a pastor. And uh, again, to his great credit, um, began to realize that, um, you know, his church uh, needed to begin to address, you know, a number of the things that uh, were taking place in that, in that city. Um, specifically, um, one of the things that Delhart began to think about was both the homeless population and, uh, you know, the women that were caught up in the sex trafficking of that city. And, you know, I've, I've talked to Delaharp a number of times. I've had a chance to be with him in South Africa a couple of times. And um, it's, just, it's just remarkable to watch him look at his city and look at those two populations in particular and see um, grace, see abundance, um, see a kind of, of mercy uh, that's at play. Um, I mean, things is practical. I think one of the things you mentioned to us, Rick, was this, you know, this little kind of trailer they've put together to be able to allow uh, the homeless uh, to have a shower, you know, uh, mm -hmm. in the morning um, and just get cleaned up for the day. I mean, just those small expressions um, that, you know, I think speak um you know, in some remarkable ways um, about the abundance of, of God, you know, in that particular locale, mm -hmm. um, you know, even, even his language itself, when you, when you listen to him talk about these two populations that can oftentimes be marginalized uh, just by the very language we use, um, yeah. you know, in Delaharp, um, the, the language has a kind of uh, weight of abundance of esteem of nobility. And um, I just, uh, you know, I've done some work in that area uh, in my own life, and it's tough, right? It's it's <laughs> at the end of the day, you just go, wow. Um, and he has done it year after year after year. And uh, twin uh, 
uh, Two Towers uh, Leadership Foundation there has really become known for its work in that space. So it's been very, very encouraging to watch, um, you know, him live out uh, abundance in that context. Yeah, especially when uh, I think a lot of people, when they take a, a view of, that I would call a problematic kind of ask, you know, so they think they look at things as problems to be solved. Then yep. uh, there's kind of a uh, more of a short term outlook on that, because then if if you work in that space for a little while and you think, well, you know, it's I haven't, you know, eradicated the city of, of any of this behavior, you know, versus yep. saying, hey, this is the city. And so, um, you know, th- this is this is not something that that is necessarily going to go away as much as we're going to get involved, you know, with the people, you yep. know, that are involved. So that re- that relationship is um is so well i mean like you said it's kind of stunning and remarkable but it's reflected in you know at a heartfelt level that's for sure so yeah that yeah. that episode i think is uh it, you know it's up there you yeah know, it's well and one of the things too that i would just draw out and this is also true and uh we'll talk here about fresno uh and then philippi but you know one of the one of the big parables that leaders foundations go back to a lot uh Rick is is the one about you know essentially the kingdom of God is like a field and uh, in the middle of the night or prior to the night the person sows weed wheat mm-hmm. and then in the middle of the night the enemy steals in and sows weeds and so of course you know the next morning uh, the local leaders foundation you know presidents wake up and they say to the Lord of the harvest you want us to kind of grab those weeds and pull them out and yeah. you expect right the answer to be, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, we're weed pullers. I mean, that's what we do. (laughs) And, um, you know, the response is curious. It's like, nope, don't do it. And there's been some biblical exegesis around this. uh, And the reasons are twofold, Rick. The first is uh, that the scripture does name, right? That in the very act of pulling up a weed, it's somehow connected to the wheat and you will lose both in pulling it up. The second piece of that is that when weeds and wheat are young, uh, they actually look alike, and you can't tell the difference. And here's a, you know, here's a fairly scandalous sort of moment. But I think, to the degree that we understand this, um, is the degree that we can sustain our work right in these tough places. Mm-hmm. And that is, is that the kingdom of God uh, is not the absence of weeds; um, it's the presence of weeds. And it's learning to live with both weeds and wheat and mm-hmm. uh, not have a conniption fit over the fact that somehow a, a weed showed up. Uh, yeah. I've, I've watched group after group after group, church after church after church, volunteer after volunteer burn out. Um, and they burn out and they leave principally because they just couldn't tolerate this idea of weed. Yeah. Um, and I think Delahar you know, certainly Fresno and Philippi, one of the things you sense is almost a resting heart rate of sorts of like, yep, got some weeds in this place. Mm -hmm. We're not going to, you know, somehow kind of get all doubled up and folded over uh, just because of that. In fact, it's an indication that the kingdom of God is here. Yeah, not only that, but uh, seriously, sometimes what we think is the wheat, once it's full grown, is it's the opposite. Like, 
Oh my gosh. Like, so like, true. I, I've, uh, I've pastored some weed. <laughs> yeah. Some weed, <laughs> the weed eater central before, but Hey, uh, now transition, uh, from that really remarkable city, which I've had a chance to uh, be in, in South Africa. Yeah. I've never been to, uh, Bloemfontein, but to, you know, work with some of the folks, the great folks, other folks in uh, Pretoria. But now suddenly we go to uh, Fresno, which I mean, you know, is, uh, you know, a fascinating city as well, but uh, mm -hmm. about as far as the South Africa as you can get. Yeah. And here we have uh, 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 Carlos and, and Randy doing this great work. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, again, it was, it was a, a conversation that I'm just so thankful for because, you know, in that context, um, you know, as they again began to ask the question, what does it mean for Fresno to become, you know, a playground rather than a battleground? What it appears that the Holy Spirit really drove them towards uh, was this whole notion of, um, you know, what does it mean to be a business owner and specifically uh, an entrepreneur, an innovator? And that here you had this valley, you know, full of uh, women and men, largely Latino, um, that if they were given just a little bit of social capital, um, could turn this thing around and go out and start their own business. And so at the, uh, the Center for Community Transformation, which is the Leadership Foundation of Fresno, uh, what, what Randy and Carlos have done is uh, put together both, you know, the capital, um, they've raised, you know, money in order to invest in these entrepreneurs. They've actually created a curriculum that gives them the tools uh, to know what it means to be an, you know, an innovator, an entrepreneur, and, you know, just skills like okay you know once you know you develop your product how do you take it to market you know once you develop your product how do you price it you know accordingly you know once you develop your you know your product how do you begin to scale it and what has what has taken place uh, in fresno now is is literally the sea of entrepreneurs out there from you know uh a restaurant, you know, to a landscaping business, uh, to um, fixing up cars. And um, it's just, it's, it's, I, I told Randy and Carlos, I mean, it's almost like the, it's this Pentecost um, of, of ministry that's taking place, um, but all in the business space, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I just, I just think it's, it's remarkable. In fact, it's, it's so good that we uh, had here a chance, um, actually through uh, Noah. Uh, to go and uh, make an application to the Small Business Administration, and we really used Fresno um, as the the model um, of mm -hmm. this this Small Business Administration uh, proposal we put together. And um, but it shows you just the power, I think, of Fresno and what they've done uh, in seeing again their city as one of abundance and it full of uh, women and men who, if they were given a chance, uh, would take you know, that little, you know, bit of leaven and, uh, you know, turn it over and mm -hmm. uh, really begin to to change uh, what's taking place in Fresno. So just amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Th that's, that's another winning episode right there. We recommend, uh, you know, uh, if you haven't had a chance to, to hear that full episode. And then, then we go to what one of, one of the interesting things is that there are certain locations that have, um, you know, become kind of like, you know, uh, 
fodder for joke telling, you know, because I mean, yeah. I think when I was a kid, somebody would say, if you're from Poland and then there was all this stereotypical stuff about, you know, Polish people and, yeah. uh, you know, and just here and there. And, and my dad, actually, his nickname was Mick. And I don't think he ever knew it was like actually a racial slur. Cause he's like a, <laughs> an Irish guy, <laughs> you know, he just thought it was kind of cool, but you know, uh, somebody told me once, Oh, you're, they were calling your dad, like a kind of a drunk Irishman. And I'm like, well, he, yeah, that's, yeah. That's actually an accurate description, but I don't think my dad knew it. But West Virginia, you know, <laughs> has kind of gotten the rap that, you know, it's like so backward and, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's still, you know, uh, you know, has yet to, to uh, been, be civilized sort of like, and then that's nothing can be further from the truth. I mean, it's just a, yeah. a amazing thing. And so uh, Rustin's work there was, it's just such a great thing to, to hear about. Yeah. Yeah, so the Leaders Foundation, Philippi, uh, you know, town of about 2,000. So, you know, very different than most of our Leaders Foundations. Uh, but if you uh, take what we oftentimes describe as the misery index of a community, um, you know, a place like Philippi is off the chart um, with regard to, um, you know, everything from unemployment, un education, lack of education, I mean, um, certainly the opioid um, crisis, you know, almost has itself its ground zero in a place like Philippi. And, mm -hmm. and so New Vision, which is the leadership foundation there in West Virginia, has jumped into that space. And, um, you know, I, I have the privilege of being the senior associate of Rustin and, um, you know, just everything that Rustin does has a kind of almost permanent sort of abundance built into it. Um, and, you know, things like he took an old barn and turned it into a community health center. Um, and, you know, he's now providing, you know, uh, or not he, but, but the healthcare center is providing, you know, this unbelievably accessible, uh, excellent healthcare for people that have just been, you know, beat up. He's taken, you know, the money that he has gotten uh, from our Department of Justice grant and made use of it um, but specifically what he has done is tried to focus in on opioid uh, addiction because so mm -hmm. many of their young people um, are wrapped around the axle of that um, and you know I, I sometimes laugh with rustin i said rustin you're kind of like lf's macgyver i mean it's just like whatever you're sort of able to kind of grab a hold of i mean you do a couple twists and turns and before you know it you've created something that is just like mm -hmm. wow how, yeah. how did you how did you do that and you know and again i i think it's as simple as the way rustin sees um mm -hmm. that that this place that at times is so difficult um he absolutely you know loves um you know rustin's also involved in our charity to change initiative uh, through the lily grant and uh you know recruiting churches uh, and giving them a training to move them from classic charity, right? Just, you know, kind of giving out food baskets and things like that uh, to change, actually beginning to engage systems in Philippi uh, to ensure, you know, that, uh, that, you know, positive concrete change can take place in ways that will benefit, you know, people on the ground. So, yeah. Again, Philippi is forever removed from a place like Bloemfontein or Fresno, and yet um, sits with a uh, similar kind of, again, impulse and heart 
for how you uh, see your particular city to see it with one of abundance rather than scarcity. Mm-hmm. And once that locks in, um, then everything becomes possible. And that's, yeah, well, and, that's the exciting. And thing. I think sometimes, Dave, don't you think when, when we say abundance, of course, we, we do, you know, default to budget and, you know, I mean, you know, grant proposals and, you know, trying yeah. to, you know, trying to finance things, but there are expressions of abundance that are even more important than that actually lead to that, which one of them that's you right. mentioned would be innovation. Like innovation is an abundant expression, you know, to be able to take, you know, uh, some bailing wire and duct tape and, you know, and create something that, you know, nobody else uh, thought of. And the other one is yeah. influence, you know, the, the great, like uh, abundant influence in a particular community is a is a um, an amazing expression of uh you know yep. of of generosity to that community and then of course it leads to once you're influential you know it leads to to all kinds of things um and i think what you said also is that one of the ways we see the city is we we see how others see it like like rustin is an example and so you know as as would be you know randy carlos and and you know and the ones we've talked about but they when we see them see their city that it turns the lights on for us you know so i think that's what's so uh, been so helpful about having yeah. this the, a chance to have a discourse you know that is you know with uh, important leaders around the world and uh, so yeah. what would you say how would you add on to that a little bit dave uh, just uh, cuz we're coming to the end of this podcast but what what would you say um are some things that allow uh these leaders to to live this out or to see uh, their city, you know, and, yeah. and to understand this abundant worldview that uh, Jesus, uh, you yeah. know, introduced. Yeah, I, I maybe just kind of tease out the three things, Rick, and some of these, again, we've already talked about, but to make it maybe a bit more concrete, <clears throat> you know, the first is to, you know, and I would call this a discipline, and that's keep your eyes open. Um, mm-hmm. The, and, you know, this becomes more difficult when you recognize that many things are organized in our life in such a way as to not keep your eyes open, right? Mm-hmm. To look away. And so, you know, we, uh, we, you know, just simply want to say that time and time again, um, you know, there is a way of keeping your eyes open and con- consequently there's a way of not keeping your eyes open and are you willing to see? And that, that again, I mean, sounds so simple, but um, I can I can tell you I've just been with myself, with others, and how easy it is to you know look away, um, yeah. to um, you know look beyond, uh, you know look beneath, but hardly ever look at what is. Within that, then I think a more granular thing is to say, well, what are you looking for? And one of the things about, I think, again, community development in cities is looking for what are the connections that are already at play, um, right? In other words, don't get caught up in this notion that somehow now my job is to invent something um, that's, that's never been, but rather, you know, what is the connection that's always already taking place uh, that holds within it a possibility for a kind of innovation, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's it's the Catholic priest who, um, you know, has little or nothing to do with 
Foursquare pastor on the other side of town, other than the fact that, interestingly enough, they both like cigars. Um, might there be a relationship to be made there because of just something like that connection? Um, I could, you know, just tell story after story after story about, you know, when you see a connection like that that's already there, you know, build upon it, innovate upon that, and some really magical things begin to take place. And then the third thing I would say within that innovation connection, Rick, is always be on the lookout for leadership and how leadership manifests itself. Again, this, this is something, again, for LF that we go back to time and again. It's the first function of our wheel of change, right? Engaging leaders of good faith and goodwill. Um, I don't think you can overstate uh, the importance of that quality and how important it is, you know, to be able to both see leadership that's already at place, as well as then, once you see it, uh, to begin to build upon it, you know, to work with it. Um, so those, those are the three, and I, I think you could make a strong argument that that's exactly how Jesus saw as he walked through the Gospels, right? He was unafraid to see, you know, what is, you know, what was currently taking place. Um, yeah. He was always, you know, making these connections in these remarkable ways, um, you know, between law and mercy, between, you know, uh, the Old Testament uh, and what its new expression could be, you know, uh, wineskins, I mean, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, his uncanny ability to look at, you know, in the case of the apostles, of course, this ragtag group that was anything but, you know, at least nominally what looked like good leadership. And he saw leadership in them and, yeah. and moved them, moved women, um, you know, to these places that change the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I th- think of, uh, uh, I was talking to, uh, uh, Marvely, who I get to be married to and, uh, and, uh, actually Dave, we were just at a wedding thing and we were dancing at the end of the wedding reception, you know, and it was for my nephew's wedding. And they started doing that. If you've been married five years, you know, stay on the <laughs> floor. And they kept going, we were the last ones. It was like, what happened? We were, <laughs> We were like the dinosaurs. People were like applauding us that we could still dance, you know, and, and, uh, you know, without a respirator. But, uh, but one of the things we were talking about was the fact that we find, we find certain people very super interesting. You know, I say, you know, what is it about people that are so interesting? And this is what we came up with. We came up with this interesting people have taken an interest in something. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and when you take an interest in your city and you love the city and you, you see the city and you look for connections in your city, and then, you know, you're, you're keeping an eye for, for leadership, you know, and, and you start to understand how that, you know, who those people are and they're, that they're not the ones that, you know, are yeah. always, you know, the ones you think uh, are going to be, it's so interesting, and totally. I think that that's what's happened with, uh, you yeah. know, even our conversations with uh, the leaders in these different cities is they are such interesting people because they have taken such an interest, you know, in the in the the cities they live in and the people there and with an eye toward um, th- this yep. city, seeing it as a playground, not a battleground. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I love it. So that's a that's a 
pretty comprehensive wrap up of uh, hopefully if you've um, been listening to our podcast, you would say, oh, hey, thanks for, for you know, kind of doubling back. If you <laughs> haven't, maybe that would inspire you to listen to some of those episodes and, That's right. and hear uh, from these actual individuals. But uh, we like to end our, our uh, podcast with a, a recommendation uh, that a lot of times one of our guests will come with a recommendation. Uh, so they're, they, you know, they are going to give us either a, an idea, a book, a movie, a, a practice, you know, a you know, just something that helps us to open our eyes and see the city as God sees the city. And so this week, um, you're going to share something with us, right, Dave? I am. I am. And, uh, you know, with that list of ways that uh, help shape our site, Rick, my my default, of course, uh, tends to be the literary. And uh, so more often than not, it'll be a book that comes out of me, although on occasion it'll be a film as well. But I just finished a book. Um, and the name of it is Man at Play. Um, and that, you know, was written in the 50s. And so, uh, mm-hmm. excuse the, it could be humankind at play to be yeah. sure. But it was written by um, a Jesuit, a uh, guy by the name of Hugo Rahner. Um, and people might not know that name, although they might know the last name because his older brother, Carl Rahner uh, was a, a famous theologian in the 20th century and was a principal contributor to Vatican II. And I just happened, I mean, through Carl um, to kind of get to Hugo. And I just, the title just, you know, grabbed me. And mm-hmm. so I grabbed it and um, read it here uh, a month ago. And his, his basic argument um, is effectively that creation was not necessary, um, that there was nothing in God's job description, right? That said, you know, now God must create, you know, the world, humankind. Um, and he said, so why then did God create? Um, and his answer, uh, interesting enough, is because of God's playfulness. And so in the book, he basically talks about the God at play, uh, the man or humankind at play, the church at play, and then effectively, you know, the, uh, you know, sort of uh, afterlife heaven uh, at play. And I just, I found it, Rick, to just be this wonderfully kind of, you know, yeah, perspective changing idea. Um, and getting me out of the utilitarian faith sometimes that I think yeah. I sort of, you know, kind of slug around in and, you know, well, this happens and then this has to happen. And he sort of broke that paradigm and said, no, none of it actually had to happen. Um, uh, this whole thing, as tough and as difficult as it is at times, is a result of God's playfulness. Mm. And that if we are being made into the image of God, which of course we are told that we are, we will be then playful. Um, and I think the idea of, of this job, you know, this podcast, I mean, this stuff that we do, Rick, emanating from a place of play, you know, rather than duty, um, yeah. is a delightful idea. So this, this book really helped me uh, once again become convinced that the city is uh, God's playground rather than a battleground. Yeah, that's a great recommendation. We thank you for that, Dave. And to me, I, I think that kind of resonates with, uh, I was thinking about Dorothy Sayers and when she talks about God uh, has, you know, Perfect. It, it just, you know, responds, 
out of whimsy. That's her yeah. word. That is such yeah. a great English word, but yeah. So, well, <laughs> I feel that way as well. I don't, I don't, um, I, I look forward to, uh, getting a chance to have this conversation and it's just a real treat to be able to record it and appreciate, uh, Noah basket and all of his production work and everything to get mm -hmm. it out to everybody. So, uh, again, if you have any, um, ideas, recommendations, Hey, uh, you know, why don't you guys talk about this? How about, how come I'm not a guest, anything like that? <laughs> Just give us a, a shout out info at leadershipfoundations.org. And uh, we'll look forward to talking next time, Dave. Sounds great, Rick. Thanks.